Hi, this is a podcast of the best bits of Breakfasters for the week ending June 5. Breakfasters is a Monday to Friday breakfast show broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia. Coming up on the podcast, you will hear us talking about our weekends and also chatting to Simonia Baldy about the Save Our Scene campaign, which launched this week. Uh, also, we caught up with, with uh, Richard Sawada from the St Kilda Film Festival, which is happening very soon. And also, uh, I um, talked about the time that I I did a character piece at a football club. God knows why. Um, <clears throat> also, we had a bit of a chat about Sarah's shame eating. <laughs> Uh, Simone Ubaldi came back for a regular screen review looking at the 1989 Spike Lee classic, Do the Right Thing. Simon Hinckley was in for Feature Creatures looking at uh, zombies and insects. And we spoke to poet Sarah Holland-Batt about her essay in the latest Griffith Review about elderly and aged care. Triple R. Monday morning. Hope you had a terrific weekend. Um, we are here at the... Uh, Kath and Jess house. We um we we did some we did some more landscaping. Um I cannot like so our sunken patio has we've done the next step. Uh we've laid out the the base. So it's like road base that we got. Um and so I spent a lot of the weekend <clears throat> shoveling gravel, like concreted this it's almost like concrete and gravel. Like we just got a, a trailer load and I just moved a lot of that from the trailer onto the ground and spread it out. Um, I can't like, there were points though where I was just like, I, I might, I might become a labourer. Like if this is what it is, <laughs> this kind of, I can, I can dig, like I can and move and dump. Like if, if comedy never comes back, Maybe I'll look at becoming a bricklayer or something like that. I'm like, I could, I reckon I could do this. And then, like five minutes later, I'd be going, Nah, I'm like in tears. Like there was one stage where I thought, like on the Saturday afternoon, I like I, Kath was like, Oh yeah, we've we've got enough up the back there, so that's that's good. And I, you know, I kind of got to the point where I knew I'd had. Like I thought I'd finish this one part of the job and it felt really good. It was like late on a Saturday afternoon. It was like four o'clock. I'm like, yeah, this is great. Look at all that bit's completed. Crack open a beer. I'm like, this is what it's about. You yeah. Know, work hard all day and then you crack open a tinny and put your feet up and relax. And then the next day when we started um, – has started adding more stuff to the bit that I'd finished. And I was like, what do you, I thought we'd finished back then. She goes, oh, no, we've got heaps more. We've got to put another layer. And then oh. I just cried. <laughs> just was like, she goes, why? What's wrong? And I'm like, you've just, I couldn't try to explain. I'm like, you've just taken away my one moment of, you know, I can't even think of the word now. It was like I, I was, you know, accomplishment. Yeah, you've taken that away. Like I felt proud of finishing that bit, and now it's just gone. You've just gone, you know. Oh, yeah. 
yeah, you've still got heaps. Of, and she goes, how could you not be proud of, look how much we've done. How could you be not be proud of everything that we've done? And I'm like, I'm not looking at the bigger picture. I'm looking at that one thing yeah. that I thought I'd finished. And Doesn't I that, isn't that almost like a great example of you and Kath psychologically as humans? Oh, yeah, probably. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that, gone from... that what? No, I was just thinking gone from sunken patio to sunken jazz. Yeah. <laughs> That's not bad. It's great. Just standing on a trailer with a pitchfork trying to, you know, get this all this gravel broken up so we could put it on a on a wheelbarrow. I was just like cry anyway. How was your weekend? It was uh it, look, it was very uh there was it was joviality. There was I didn't expect that word to come out. It was it Is that was, like the polite was... word for drunkenness? <laughs> yeah, I think so. Um we ended up on Friday night. It was actually it was due to happen, but um well, I'm staying with Jesse's folks and uh on the telly, obviously there's no football. We all know that. It's coming mm-hmm. back, but there's no football at the moment. So on the TV, as planned, there was um I think a match between uh, anyway, Jesse's dad, Tim, uh, an old DVD transferred from VHS. Oh, God. Uh, Southport v. Sandgate, 1983 in oh the QAFL. God. Oh, wow. <laughs> I mean, it was Elenko was playing. Oh, my God. Uh, what a classic. <laughs> uh, Tim kicked five goals, <laughs> wow. uh, which I think is why it was on. And they, <laughs> But, but yeah, I was, it's I I recommend having sport on in the background, old sport, where ordinarily there would be sport. Oh, so old like, sport because you can't remember the results, so it's well a bit of that. Yes, I did. And you're not as invested, maybe like if it's new sports, you kind of pulled away all the time. Yes, there was there was uh, I was watching the AFL. Uh, I forget what channel it was, but uh, maybe it was Channel on Fox Hill, but they were playing sport. They were playing old matches. But the matches were framed as like, watch your team come from behind or something like that. Oh. I'm like, what? Yeah. I'm like, so I'm watching this game and I know the result. Like there's yeah. not even oh. – you can't even trick yourself into thinking you don't know what it's going to be because – uh, it, it was framed as watch this predetermined result, but you know, so there was no sense of fun yeah. or rediscovery. That's that's fun if you like if it's a classic bit that you can never forget. You know, like Michael Long kicking that goal. Like exactly. I'd happily watch that again and again. But yeah, but I reckon that's because they know the psychology of footy fans, and no footy fan wants to invest in a replay of a game their team loses. Right. You know, like you think you want the thrill of it, but you don't. You know, if you spent three hours re-watching a game and then to lose, you'd be like, what a waste of my life. Like, <laughs> yeah. I've re-watched a loss. That's true. Yeah, all right. Okay, you've convinced me. Yeah. Uh, and then Gunnamatta, took Gabe to Gunnamatta. I saw Ooh. a beautiful picture that Jesse uploaded to him on Instagram, looking very photogenic, Gunnamatta. Well, I, was, I mean, this is the thing. Jesse uploaded it. It is not. It was not her photo. Like, if you look at the hand, it's hairy as. It's my hand. Oh, I didn't she, even realise. <laughs> she was nowhere to be seen. Just post-birth hormones, really. <laughs> um, I went to the Botanical Gardens on Friday. I want to meet my sister there at the Botanical Gardens. And usually you can go for a walk there and park and it's – fine it's quite pleasant but it was packed like oh really yeah and I found that the parking around there at the moment is all just a buck 
like flat rate for a buck. So I don't know, people are just out, very fancy looking people as well were out in force. Like lots of expensive looking puffy black jackets were kind of whooshing around the gardens. So we just went and got, (laughs) we just went and got, I had some scones to get into the vibe and um, ate some scones and hung out in the Botanical Gardens for a couple of hours and it was beautiful. Put on your black jacket and (laughs) whooshing around. Go for a whoosh. (laughs) Yeah, I just felt it was just very yeah, it was highlighted. But it was good. it was really nice just to be out and about again and um hugged my sister as well. Like I wasn't we haven't seen each other since way before the pandemic. Like we haven't seen each other for 3 months. And mm. so um it was a very strange experience committing to the hug and I realize now there's probably going to be a new hug in everyone's lives which is kind of like the head twisted all the way both heads kind of twisted either side of each other quite far apart so it's just like your bodies are contact touching each other but nothing else it's like the opposite of the awkward man hug where they just touch each other's tops and the bottoms don't touch yeah it's more like bottom heavy not for me when i go in for a hug i'm going all in i'm gonna go cheek to cheek yeah oh mate well we're not going to be hugging for a while are we (laughs) i'm gonna gonna push my face right up against yours (laughs) (laughs) the st kilda film festival is australia's largest and longest running short film fest and is this year moving online with the country's top 100 short films as well as special programming packaged into sessions across one jammed week in June. The stakes are high with the Festival and Academy Awards qualifying event. And to tell us about what's in store, we're joined by a newly appointed director of St Kilda Film Festival, Richard Sawada. Welcome to Breakfasters. Yeah, yeah. Thanks, Tate. Thanks for having me. Our pleasure. Um, your first St Kilda Film Festival must be a bit of a baptism of fire. <laughs> <laughs> true, true. But look, you know, our old mate, uh, Paul Harris, who was the director for 21 years or so, 22 years, uh, he left the event in pretty darn good shape, I have to say. You know, people love the festival. Uh, it, you know, the, the physical location at the St Kilda Town Hall was really great. And I don't want to dwell on that too much, but we had a lot of really great plans for the festival this year in the live context at the Town Hall. We were going to really change the the format of the event, uh, make it much more live with live music and that sort of thing. And I was delving into a whole range of kind of analog experiences with 16 millimeter projecting and uh, a whole range of other more dynamic kind of cabaret style um, uh, presentation type things. But that wasn't to happen. (laughs) (laughs) But the good thing about that is that the whole team uh, at the city of Port Phillip, you know, behind the St Kilda Film Festival, was really starting to think in a different way about the event and how to present it differently and how to program it differently and that sort of thing. So we were in a pretty good headspace, and I think we were actually probably about halfway there um, to moving online in a strange kind of a way. And then when it all happened, um, we it was like we are all in doing thinking things in a different way, and then it was like, oh, okay, now we're doing this. So we shifted really fast, uh, and uh, it was we were already wanting to learn new things and try new things. So learning new things in the online way was a really great challenge for us, and we really, really enjoyed it, and are still really enjoying it. It's really, um, it, it's really uh, a very steep learning curve, but it's very, it's a, it's a lot of fun. Yeah, can you give us a flavour of how it might uh, transpire? 
Yeah, well, look, the event, uh, it starts on the 12th of June. Uh, it will all be free. Uh, and the way that I was working with it in the program side of things anyway was, like, I looked at the films that were coming in. There was, like, close to 700 films that, that come in for the festival. And I kind of I looked at them all and I, I looked at what kind of patterns were emerging in the style of the, the program of the films, you know, and how they naturally start to speak to each other. You know, it's like uh, musical notes or whatever, which are all just random. And then you start placing one or two or three chords in a um, in a pattern and then suddenly you kind of got a song. So I started trying to write the songs basically out of the out of the films. And then they kind of cluster into their own thematic kind of type programs, which all the films kind of start speaking to each other within its own program. And then lo and behold, um, 17 individual programs emerge made up of the 100 films, as you say, and um, they all speak to each other within the program. But together as the 17 programs, they all kind of speak to each other as a whole kind of journey for audiences, which is really great, I think. And it's a really good snapshot of contemporary Australian filmmaking and moving image art, actually. It goes beyond just cinema, traditional narrative cinema and into art and experimental works and all that sort of thing. So that's kind of that's kind of how it will unfold. And people can watch the movies at any time during the, the festival period for free, like I said. Uh, and um, we will be having workshops and talks and panel discussions and all that sort of thing as well. So, uh, But I can talk about them too in a sec if you like. But anyway, that's the, the pattern of it all. Brilliant. Um, can you maybe give a taste of some of the uh, categories you've got? I noticed moving portraits, for instance, is pretty interesting. Oh, yeah. Look, I love documentary films, full stop. You know, they're my favourite next to submarine movies. They're my favourite. <laughs> What about documentaries about submarines? <laughs> well, there you have it. Yeah. There you have it. Uh, it's the best of both worlds there. But, look, um, the Moving Portraits program is documentaries. Uh, and, you know, one of the one of the strands, obviously, that emerged when I was looking at them, looking at the films, was films about people, you know. And what I really love about the portrait-type um, uh, programs is that, they're not about grand statements and big moments. They're about, like, next door, and they're about the little things uh, and the, the tiny nuances of people's lives. Like, there's this really lovely documentary called uh, Silver Lining in the program. I don't think it's in the Moving Portraits program, but it's in the program overall, about a Chinese uh, immigrant who's been living in Australia for a number of years, and she's very poor, uh, living here in Melbourne, uh, and it just follows her and her dreams. Uh, and uh, it's really, really beautiful. And so those kind of things, you know, they're just so tiny but really authentic and meaningful. And mm. I was looking for authenticity throughout the program and the documentary program's got it in ACES. Yep. Can you tell us a little bit about the big picture as well and what that entails? Yeah, look, the big picture is the um, professional development component of the festival. So traditionally we have like a whole weekend of um, workshops and masterclasses and talks and all kinds of things about financing your movie, producing films, marketing and distribution, um, cinematography, sound, the whole gamut. And that was probably the hardest thing to translate to an online environment, I don't mind saying, uh, because those kind of things are really important to eyeball the speakers and the presenters, but also eyeball the other participants and really sort of um, 
you know, shuffle the cards around. So, uh, so getting that kind of spirit was a hard thing. So, but I think we've done a pretty good job. And uh, so we've got, I don't know how many uh, online talks and masterclass we've got one every weeknight with filmmakers in the program. And then on the Saturday and Sunday, we've probably got another, I don't know, seven, eight, maybe 10, looking at things like producing, directing, and the whole gamut of the, the sector. And uh, there's kind of, I guess, a bit of a focus on having to make films with your own resources as we have to now. But there's one particularly interesting one, uh, and that's looking at how to direct intimacy on screen. Uh, and that, I think, is a really great, um, you know, it's a very sensitive area and a very t difficult area on set. So that's a, that's a really good one too. But they're all free as well. And uh, can you run us across any of the sort of special programming or flourishes that you've added? <laughs> I like that word, uh, especially this time of the morning. So one of the uh, – there, there are probably two flourishes. Uh, and, and one of them, very early on, even in the physical event, we were going to be having a bit of a focus on protest and advocacy and youth culture and such and the urgency behind that. Uh, and that's where the analogue was coming in, where we were going to show films on 16mm and – have this really uh, rock and rolly type happening happening uh so in the town hall but one of the participants in that was uh the legendary um indigenous actor activist gary foley who worked with phil noyce on numerous occasions but very early in phil noyce's filmmaking career and so in the advocacy program i was looking at films from jan chapman Jane Campion and Philip Noyce, uh, and Gary Foley was was going to be in there presenting the films as well. Uh, so fortunately, in the online environment, we've been able to keep Gary on board. So he'll be presenting Backroads, the Phil Noyce film from 1977, I think, uh, and also uh, another Phil Noyce documentary called Castor and Pollux, which follows a member of the Fink's motorcycle gang and uh, and, a, and a hippie. So it's like a, a dual documentary. And that was from 1974. So we've got them and Gary, Gary will be presenting his own in conversation with talking about a life in activism and, and filmmaking in Australia. So that's amazing. And Gary is incredible uh, and uh, can really tell a story. And the other one is a program from Jane Campion, her early film works, particularly when she was at the film and television and radio school in New South Wales. And um, so we've got newly restored short works of hers. Uh, and they're incredible. And while she was at film school, you know, she had two films at the Cannes, Cannes Film Festival, and one of them won the Palme d'Or for short film. And, man, you know, that's just something as a student, you know, mm. real testament to the beauty of her work. So we've got those those two, Jane Campion's works and Gary Foley, which I'm very proud of. They're great programs. Yeah. Uh, it's a tawdry question, but can you tell us about the prize money? <laughs> oh, the prize money. The prize money, yes. Well, as, as usual, we have the uh, Film Festival Awards for Best Film and Best Documentary and Best Performance and a whole range of other categories. I think there's about a dozen categories. And the City of Port Phillip, in their generosity, uh, not only do they employ me, but they provide the best film, <laughs> the best film with a 10 grand cash prize, which is uh, 
amazing. That's good money by anyone's standards, particularly mine. Uh, and, uh, um, so, but there's a whole lot of other awards with cash prizes and in kind and all, all sorts of things. So that will be happening on the 12th, the awards ceremony. Uh, and uh, you can tune in and see who's um, who's. I think we might be announcing the the winner of that actually a little bit in advance of uh, of the final day of the program. Okay. But um, it's an awesome uh, gesture and and really very important for filmmakers at any level. All right. Well, the St Kilda Film Festival is on from June 12 to 20 uh, for the program. And full details go to stkildafilmfestival.com.au. We've been chatting with festival director Richard Sawada. Thanks so much for joining us, Richard. Oh, look, it's a real pleasure. Thanks for having me. Triple R. Recognised as the music capital of Australia, Melbourne boasts more live music venues per capita than any other city in the world. Now, the city's iconic music venues have published an open letter to the Victorian government to launch SOS, Save Our Scene. With the state's music scene on the brink of collapse in the wake of COVID-19 shutdowns and no relief in sight, an urgent call is being made to the Victorian government for assistance. And on the line to tell us about it is a voice you'll recognise, Simone Yabaldi is booker for the Croxton Hotel in Thornbury and co-director of the Save Our Scene campaign. Simone, hello. Under less sunny circumstances. Yeah, hi guys. How are you doing? Uh, good. What's it been like on the ground for you over the last few months to make this campaign necessary? Uh, it's been pretty grim, to be honest. Um, music venues were the first to close their doors when the COVID restrictions came in. So our business ground to a halt. Um, and I joined a group of music bookers and um, venue owners from around Melbourne and Victoria who were in these increasingly kind of dire straits and trying to figure out how they were going to keep their buildings continuing when there was no prospect of kind of reopening and restarting their businesses uh, and no targeted package from the government to kind of ensure they could reopen those businesses when restrictions were lifted. So, you know, we're facing first to shut our doors and likely last to reopen, uh, during which time many of uh, Melbourne's iconic venues weren't going to be coming back. They weren't going to be able to sustain themselves through the shutdown. So we decided that we really needed to get together and kind of organise and, and, and make that issue a little bit more known because it's we, we feel like it's something worth preserving. It's something really essential to Melbourne that just isn't being taken care of currently. Mm. And behind the scenes, it's not terribly sexy, is it, this bleeding out? I mean, we're talking insurance, rent. You know, what are the what are the nuts and bolts that you might not, an outsider might not recognise um, that's making this crisis hit so hard? It really is that basic stuff. It's it's leases that can't be paid, it's mortgages, it's rent, it's utilities, it's insurance. Uh, we have had some relief around liquor licensing, at least for this year, but really something, you know, these businesses are very, very uh, long-term businesses and because of consumer confidence around mass gatherings and music culture, live music culture is about mass gathering, um, we're going to be feeling the pain of, of consumer fear around that well into the future, well into 2021. So there are a lot of different levers we think that could be pulled to help the industry not just stay in hibernation healthily but actually relaunch in a successful way and not be crippled by deferred debt or bills down the line. What are the kinds of things that you're looking for? 
We're looking for the government to sit down with Museum Victoria as the representative of our industry and work out a package that's suitable for our industry. We know that we're not the whole music industry, but we are the critical infrastructure of the music industry and the hardest thing to replace, right? So everyone's suffering. Artists are suffering. The arts broadly have been really ignored and are suffering. From our point of view, all we could do is organise our members and go, look, it's really hard to get a liquor licence. It's really hard to get a long-term lease. It's really hard to invest in starting up this kind of venue. But these venues, yes, they're small businesses. They are the places where artists work and make their money. Venues equal opportunities for artists, right? So we're looking for the government to fund a package that actually helps to sustain that critical infrastructure for the music industry. Uh, we're looking for uh, a roadmap to recovery that's clear and balanced and reflects what's going on elsewhere in the community, but also helps an industry that requires three and six months to plan ahead with gigs and sell tickets, a roadmap that actually gives us clear markers of what could be coming in the future so we can start to plan meaningfully around that that's integrated with health so that we have really the strongest and best possible advice from health about how to reopen safely. And finally, a fund that actually helps relaunch music in Melbourne because, you know, again, there is that consumer confidence issue, there is a long-term planning issue. That fund could be used in the same way that JobKeeper is used on a federal level to funnel down to artists but actually keep them connected to the stages where they play and perform. Mm. And there's a there's a petition? There's a petition that we launched yesterday. It's a formal petition to the Victorian Parliament uh, sponsored by Fiona Patton. We've got about 6,000 signatures so far, so we're tracking really well. We want to get as many voices who care about live music, whether it's because uh, music and live music, because this is the entire community, including DJs and electronic, uh, we want to get as many people who care about having this robust scene in Melbourne to raise their voices because, you know, we all respect the fact that health has been vitally important. Health is saving us and a robust economy is going to sustain us. But music is what we live for. And we've seen that in lockdown. We've seen how many people have tried to kind of raise their voices in music and art uh, online to give people kind of meaning in this crazy time. That's something that defines Melbourne. It's such a powerful part of our creative state and our culture. Our state government's been really supportive of it historically. We really need them to step up and make sure that it's mm. there in future. So we need people's voices on the petition. Yeah. Talk to a, us, oh, sorry. Go ahead, Jeff. Uh, yeah. Talk to us about what the ideally what you'd see this, you know, roadmap. What do you think that's going to look like? Well, you know, we've had roadmaps to reopening at a federal level and state level that talk about, Scott Morrison was talking about his three-stage recovery being fully reopened at 100 people with four-metre social distancing. That completely leaves out our industry. Mm. Music is a mass-gathering culture and most businesses cannot function sustainably with four-metre square social distancing. We know that it's necessary right now, but how do we get back? And if we can't get back, for six months or 12 months or 18 months, you know, what is our cultural landscape going to look like on the other side of that? The government really needs to step in and make sure that that stuff is protected if health means that we can't do it right now. So that roadmap is all the way open for us. And, you know, we know we have to be flexible. We know that's something that can't happen in the short term, but we need proper input from health and a really transparent conversation with government that takes in what our what our culture and ecology actually is and what our fully functioning businesses really are and not stopping at 100 people because that's not us. Yeah. Yeah. Um, if I don't know if you read the article, but Anwen Crawford did a piece for the monthly uh, titled The Ripple Effect and it looked at one gig 
that was cancelled for Cable Ties, who released a record this year. It was kind of meant to be their year. They were, you know, meant to be going overseas and touring and stuff. But she looked at just the cancellation of one show at the Corner Hotel and how many people that affected. And I guess that's something that this campaign can highlight too, that it's not just the actual venues, it's the sound engineers, it's the bar staff, it's it's the bands themselves. There's so many people that lose out from one show not happening, let alone a year. It's the techs who provide the PAs. It's the booking companies who actually are involved in booking runs for bands. It's publicity people. It's media people. But it's also economic multipliers. Like when people go out and see shows, they often go out and have meals. When people come to Melbourne, they're often coming to Melbourne to participate in our vital music and arts culture. So there are so many things being lost if we don't pay attention to protecting this scene, protecting the arts more broadly. But again, you know, the state government invested a whole bunch of money in the state-owned arts organisations in the experiences package, which is critical because they're these marquee buildings. You've got to maintain those marquee buildings for all of the arts that unfold within them. And we're saying there's another commercial layer of that in music venues that you need to take care of as well if you want that culture to be as vibrant and world-renowned at the end of this crisis as it was going in. Yeah, and as if the financial situation wasn't precarious enough for many in the gig economy uh, before the pandemic. Um, So the petition can be signed at www.saveourscene.com.au. You're also on on Instagram, saveourscene.vic. Is is there anything else that you'd like the listeners to know? No, just get in there, raise your voices. Um, I mean, look, raise your voices for the arts generally because they are what we live for. But please, yeah, get online today and save the petition. It'll help. Co-director of Save Our Scene campaign, Simone Ubaldi. Thanks heaps. Thank you. Cool. I'm going to take a track now from an artist who's played some pretty memorable shows at your the venue you book, Simone, the Croxton, um, and hopefully who we can see performing again. Triple R on FM, digital, online and via the app. Elizabeth McCarthy is here to give us an update on the progress of her bedside book stack. Hey, Elizabeth. Hey, Daniel. Hi, Geraldine. Hi, Sarah. Hello. Hello. Hi. I thought today I'd talk about um, Mark Lanigan's memoir that's recently come out called Sing Backwards and Weep. It's got a lot of attention, so I'm a big, big Mark Lanigan fan and I thought I'd uh, have a read of it. And I've just recovered from reading. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, so uh, he's very familiar to a lot of Triple R listeners, but there might be a few people who haven't heard of him. So, he's the former lead singer with Screaming Trees and highly acclaimed solo artist. And he's been played on Triple R for many years. And let's be clear, his voice is nothing short of extraordinary, and to my ears, belongs in the music canon alongside other great American vocalists like Johnny Cash, Nina Simone, Aretha, Patti Smith, um, Chuck D, Willie Nelson. He is one of the great vocal American vocalists. And, and the memoir covers the moment of his birth right through to his early 30s, which is when he cleaned up his act. And so the memoir finishes in the early 2000s when Lanigan gets help for his heroin and crack addictions, fully financed and supported by the one and only Courtney Love. Um, and so I'll tell you a bit about 
his life. So he was the kind of kid that your parents would urge you to stay away from. To use the Australian vernacular, he was a bugger of a kid. He was, <laughs> he was, he was from when he was a boy, he was a hustler, a gambler, a thief a liar, a cheat, a hoarder of porn. He was pretty good at sport but at high school, but um, not much else. Um, he grew up poor with a mother who was incredibly cruel and abusive and a father who was neglectful. And the picture he paints of Ellensburg in Washington State, which is where he grew up, it's a, like a two-hour drive from Seattle, Ellensburg, the picture of that town that he paints is one of despair and dead-endedness. And one day in his teens, he meets brothers Van and Lee Connor, and they are pretty good musicians, and they start a band. And the band do pretty well in the underground music scene. So the Screaming Trees are the band. They're signed to the highly regarded independent label SST Records, which is Greg Jin from Black Flag's label, and they record a bunch of albums. They get signed to a major label. Um, the, the, um, the major label industry in America at that time is just signing every Seattle band they can, throwing it to the wall, seeing what sticks, that kind of, you know, old cliché. There's a lot of money, a lot of expansiveness in the music business. The Screaming Trees get signed to Epic. They record a couple more albums. And for the first time, Lanigan starts writing his own lyrics. One thing that he hated doing was singing Van Con uh, Lee Connor's lyrics. He, you know, he just thought they were phony, fake LSD trip type lyrics and he wanted to write his own lyrics. So when, he, when they get on this major label, he starts writing his own lyrics and Lanigan himself does a couple of outstanding solo records in the early 90s. So alongside this really healthy career trajectory of TV show appearances, European and Australian tours, Lollapalooza, supporting everyone from Nirvana to Oasis to Johnny Cash, etc., alongside that is this ambience of violence, aggression, threats, loving and despairing girlfriends and this narrative of addiction and utter chaos. And the character of Lanigan that emerges is that he is, in the 90s, a man of hopeless addiction and menace. And he becomes a dealer himself. Um, he becomes homeless. His close friends die. He sells drugs from his apartment on the streets. Everyone gets absolutely jack of him and everything falls apart. And so this this memoir is written like um, like a 1940s or 50s sort of piece of literary noir, and and at times it's reminiscent of the style of novelists um, James Elroy and Cormac, Cormac McCarthy, just this kind of um, sort of hard boiled, um, blunt, brutal telling of the tale of his life. Wow, uh, and it it stops 20 years ago. It does. Um, it ends with him in rehab, uh, funded by Courtney Love, as I mentioned, and uh, you kind of get the feeling that we're not going to hear we, this, you know, there is definitely room. Like, it would be good to know what's happened over the last 20 years of his life, but um, I it, think... Could it just be that the redemption story isn't as interesting as <laughs> the first perhaps, half? Perhaps not. Um I find one of the things about this memoir is there's not a lot about making music and, like, because I'm such a fan of The Screaming Trees and his solo work, I would have liked 
more sort of um, info about process, about his creative process. There's actually very little of that. And this is something that I think um, is missing in a lot of music memoirs is the process of making music. Um, the worst music memoir I've ever written was Jerry Halli- uh, read was um, Jerry Halliwell from the Spice Girls. Real like, name's Geraldine, by the way. Yeah. <laughs> well, oh. she she did she barely mentioned music in her memoir at all. Um, you know, Motley Crue's The Dirt, which is an absolutely revolting book. Um, they <laughs> they barely mention making music either. That, that, Do you think, that, though, that's because, because I'm obsessed with music memoirs and what makes a good one and what makes a bad one. It's like go too far blaming all the ex-bandmates in your life and you come off like Morrissey, like this absolute twat, but create something and paint a picture of a scene and reveal your inner self to people really honestly. You end up with something like Patti Smith's The Kids or Carrie Brown's scenes um, – book as well but yeah. I feel like musicians themselves spend their whole life talking about the bloody process like interview yeah. after interview after review I feel like almost a memoir for them is like a breather like here I am beside my music not placed within my music yeah look yes I think that's I think that's a valid point one of one of the things about his music that to my mind, just sticks out so clearly is is all the religious iconography and religious illusion that is pervades his lyrics. Like, I mean, we talk about Nick Cave and sort of um, the religious illusions in that in his lyric writing, but Mark Lanigan, like, I, it, it, there's rarely a song that I've heard of his that doesn't have some kind of. Um, some kind of trace of sort of some religion, religious iconography, and he he was he grew up irreligious, and he has this sort of in rehab. He has a particular kind of an interventionist, a, a godlike experience. Um, so so there's nothing about like why he writes the lyrics that he writes, and I found that really frustrating. He and what you said before, Sarah, about you know talking about how all his bandmates are shit. Like the character assassination that he does on Lee Connor <laughs> is like extraordinary. And the first 60 pages of this book I was reading, like every couple of pages it's like, oh, okay, it's time to pay out on Lee Connor again. Like he just demolishes some people. Um, it's funny dem- you say that because in interviews he says I didn't go hard enough. Well, oh, he said that about Lee, Lee and Van Connor, the two brothers, yeah. and I suspect there's a lot more dirt on those those guys. Lee Connor, in particular, comes across as a creep, um, but an incredibly talented musician. Um, but you know, and then there's people like um, Liam Gallagher who just comes across as this absolute twat who probably deserves the character assassination that Mark Lanigan <laughs> Mark Lanigan gives him. So, look. This is a story about someone who grew up really unlucky and has become a very, very lucky man because people were so patient with him and so indulgent and the fact that he had famous people giving him money to score drugs, to go to rehab, to make albums um, is really lucky. It's amazing that he wasn't deserted by people like Josh Homme and um, and his record producers and record label, because the way he treats them is extraordinary, extraordinarily bad, 
and he kind of owns it by the end. This is the thing. What, what, there's something a little confusing about the book too because when he pays out on people, you're sort of thinking, is that your 30-year-old brain talking or is that the man that you are now? Are you looking at – are you trying to report this stuff from your perspective at that age or are you reporting it now? And so that's a little difficult to um, delineate but um, it's one hell of a read. And, yeah, I am exhausted. <laughs> wow, what a life. Um, okay, so it's a, it's a must-read, Brock Bio. Can I, can I call it that? Uh, Music memoir? I don't believe in must-reads, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I think, no, I, I think if you're a fan of Lanigan, you will definitely want to read this book. I think that if you're not, then you won't bother with it. And I okay. don't blame you for not bothering with it. It's... It, <laughs> It's pretty full on. But yeah. if you're a fan of his, then it's a really interesting book. And it's a really interesting book about that cohort of Seattle musicians in the 90s. Sing Backwards and Weep by Mark Lanigan, Elizabeth McCarthy. Thanks heaps. No worries. Triple R. Remember when you were younger and um, you had a lot more confidence in your ability to do things. You, you know how the world works. Like, you know, maybe 17, 18 years old, you're finishing year 12, you're like, I know how to, I know how to do things. I know what's what. Um, and then you look back on those times and you look back on something that you did that you thought maybe, oh, this would be really great for my future career, and you look back on that time and you go, oh, good Lord, why why did I think that that was a good idea? Um, if anything springs to mind, if you know what I'm talking about, um, mm. I'd love to hear it. You can text us on um, 0466 um, I don't know, this is something that I had... I don't know what made me think of it or remember it. It's something that I'd blocked from my memory. But at the end of year 12, um, there was an ad in the local paper um, asking for entertainers to perform at the um, at the football club. So it's the, the North Aubrey Football Club, which is, you know, which had like a club that, where you could go and, you know, like an RSL club type, you know, have meals and and stuff, like a whatever. And they were calling for entertainers to, which I'm sure was for, you know, maybe a singer-songwriter, maybe someone that could play guitar to come and do some entertaining while meals were being served. Um, but I read that and went, Oh, I can entertain. Oh, my God. <laughs> Who were you, freakishly confident teenager? I don't, I don't know. I don't know. And I think what happened was I think it was I thought that maybe there would be an audition or something. Um, I don't know what I was thinking. Anyway, I think maybe my drama teacher was kind of a bit influential as well and just went, oh, yeah, just go out and you know, get gigs where you can kind of thing. Um, and because this, this wasn't to do stand-up comedy, but this is when I was, you know, I'd been doing drama in high school. Oh, my God. So 
<laughs> what were you going to do? Like a soliloquy from Shakespeare or something? Almost. I did a um. I did a character piece. Oh my god. <laughs> Where I was. I played an old Russian woman. Oh, my God. (laughs) (laughs) I just remember, like, mum taking me and I had, like, my costume. What was your costume, Jez? I think it was, um, like, I had, like, a crocheted black shawl that I'd put over I want to say I, I just put it over my shoulders, but I think I put it over my head. Um, anyway, and I remember sitting there and it was like, you know, meal people were just, you know, it's just lots of old people around sitting, eating, you know, their buffet dinners. And, well, uh, they, they said yes. Yeah. Did you have to tell them what you're doing? Did you say I'm going to do a character piece? No, they just, they just, I was like, oh, I'd like to, you know. And they went, great, we'll book you in uh, on the, you know, Thursday night. I'm like, okay. Um, and then it was it was really because they advertised it in the paper. They had, like, in the entertainment section of the paper, it had Thursday night, Geraldine Hickey. <gasps> wow. Yeah. Um, and then, and I got paid for it as well. Like, I think I got a, you know, envelope with some cash in it. But, um yeah, I think we both. The I learnt, and I think the person that booked me learnt that maybe we sh- should think more about what the word entertainer means at a at a football club. Can you please give us more detail about the performance? Um, from what I can remember, yeah, I played this old Russian woman that ended up being quite evil. And like was cutting up bodies or something. Oh my god! <laughs> what? Oh no! I think it's like, like it was this Russian woman that was like, you know, looking at herself in the in in the, like having a good hard look at herself because she'd been. I don't know. I just remember there being, like, cutting things up. I don't. know. I just, yeah, and I remember the start going, do you ever look at yourself in the glass? <laughs> um, yeah, I can't remember. Anyway, and it went for maybe a few, so I just sat up on this stage and I performed the whole piece and then it took like a couple of minutes and then I went back and sat down and then the guy came over and handed me an envelope and went, thanks very much. Do you, do you remember if you were introduced to the stage as Geraldine Hickey or as the Russian woman? I think I was introduced as Geraldine Hickey or maybe I just had to get up. Do people clap? Do people clap? Hey? Do people clap? I don't remember. I, I like there are so many details which I've blocked, and I, but I remember Mum being there and not saying anything and just going, "Okay, we'll we'll, we'll go home then." <laughs> like just being 
like the silent supporter. Just I think her going, well, she, this is one way for her to learn that, you know, can't just get up and perform wherever you want. But um, anyway, we'll learn. And you got that out of your system, have you? Okay. <laughs> Off we go. Independently yours, Triple R. 102.7. Simone Ubaldi is back for the second time this week, uh, this time looking at a regular breakfast medium. Hi, Simone. Good morning, everyone. How's everybody doing? Good, thank you. Yeah. Um, I'm changing from my regular pro- or what may have been my promoted programming this week. I was going to talk about a, um, a Stan series called Zoe's Infinite Playlist, which uh, I will return to someday. But Good. It was just it was too much bullshit for our current moment so I've um, pivoted we're going to talk about Spike Lee's Do the Right Thing which is a a 1989 sort of comedy drama I mean it tends towards the drama have any of you guys seen it no no it was one of Spike Lee's breakthrough films it was the third film that he made but um, the film that kind of brought him um, breakthrough attention at Cannes and in the press and was the beginning of um, a very controversial career but is a really incredible film set in the New York neighborhood of uh, Bedford Stuyvesant in the middle of one of those classic New York heat waves and we get introduced in this context to a whole bunch of characters who populate the neighborhood one of whom is played by Spike Lee a guy called uh, Mookie who works for the local pizza restaurant which is run by Sal played by Danny Aiello and uh, his two sons Pino and Vito John Turturro and Richard Edson it's a it's a predominantly black neighborhood uh, and even though Sal has been running the pizza restaurant Sal's famous pizza uh, on this block for 20 years or more, he is kind of seen as an outsider to the black population. One of his sons, Pino, played by John Turturro, is, um, uh, you know, pretty overtly racist about the black population around him and wants his dad to actually move the restaurant away. So the film is kind of about the tensions between all the different people on the block, not just um, Mookie and his employers, but the community of people around the pizza restaurant, all of whom have grown up kind of eating the pizza and have various degree, varying degrees of kind of positive and negative relationships. Um, there are There's a character called... Demare, who's played uh, by this um, kind of elder statesman of acting called Ossie Davis, and Ruby Dee, this older woman who kind of, again, elder statesman, elder stateswoman of the neighbourhood. Demare is also an alcoholic. There's a collection of older gentlemen who sit on the corner commenting on the heat and the invasion of the neighbourhood by a Korean family who run the corner store. Um, there's a very young Giancarlo Esposito who um, he's like the Polo Hermanos guy from Breaking Bad. Oh. Yeah, yeah, he, very young. It's bizarre. Jeez. He plays a pivotal character called Bugging Out who takes issue with the fact early in the film that Sal has a collection of black and white photos on the um, wall of the restaurant that are all of his Italian-American heroes. Bugging Out wants him to put some black American people, black heroes up on the wall because the pizza restaurant services 
a largely black neighbourhood. And Sal, who's quite genial and professes a love for kind of feeding the neighbourhood, this is one point on which he's like, this is my shop. I choose who goes up on the wall. Get the hell out, you're a troublemaker. There's a couple of other iconic figures in the film, one of which is Radio Rakim, who's a largely silent character who walks around with a massive boombox that uh, pumps out Fight the Power by Public Enemy that I recently read was written actually for this film. It plays like 14 or 15 times in the film. Uh, And then there's a a DJ kind of with eyes to the neighbourhood, kind of a pseudo-narrator played by Samuel L. Jackson. So in large majority you're just seeing the kind of action over the course of this sweltering day of people moving around this neighbourhood and interacting and the racial tensions that are simmering beneath that community um and it's funny you know there's like lots of funny interactions there's lots of really interesting uh almost shakespearean dynamics between the characters and there's at one point one of spike lee's famous moves where he basically gets um characters to speak directly to camera and they have these like volleys of just really intense racial slurs like just the worst things you can think of that they're kind of pushing out into the universe at each other the film, any questions so far? No. <laughs> In the Skype medium? <laughs> so the film comes to its crescendo when there's a, a conflict between Radio Rakim, Bugging Out, and ultimately Mookie, and one of the characters in the film dies at the hands of police and a minor riot kicks off in the neighbourhood. And I'm revealing the ending of the movie, but it's a very well-known film and it's obviously the reason why I've kind of chosen it for this time. And it's important to understanding how it was received, right? So there are these complex relationships between characters of different race in the film, a particularly complex relationship between Mookie and Sal, his employer. Ultimately, Mookie... Uh, sides with his community and attacks Sal's businesses and they kind of raise it to the ground. But at the end of the film, in kind of explaining or trying to uh, uh, summarise what's happened, Spike Lee presents two quotes, one by Malcolm X and one by Martin Luther King. Uh, And they say what appear to be contradictory things, one of which is, you know, rioting and violence is a path to freedom and one of which is peace is a path to freedom. So when the movie came out in 1989, there uh, like were some notable reviews, one of which was in the New York or the rather he writes, I think it was in the New York at the time or the New York Post, but like massively racist review that just said this doesn't really represent a black neighbourhood in New York, where are the crackhead teenagers, where are the muggings, it's a confusing message and it will incite riots when people, this is like a tone of a number of reviews at the time, it will incite riots and that will be on, Spike Lee's head, uh, yeah, if it does. So, you know, and he, and it's something that I think he's carried around his entire career going, you know, it's not my film. If you don't understand that it's not my film that's causing unrest uh, and unhappiness, then we, you're actually kind of pointing to the, the broader problem, which is that you can't see what's really there. But, yeah, it was it was released in a time when film reviewers could come out and say, you know, to wag their finger and say, this film is dangerous and people said do the right thing, which when you watch it now, particularly in parallel with what's actually happening in the world, it's it's funny and kind of it's powerful ultimately, but it's a funny, very stylized film. Mm. But it's a film that people have these like allergic reactions to from what we would now call a position of extreme white privilege. 
Right. Uh, and uh, the cast as well. So you've you've name checked a few. Rosie Perez. Rosie Perez. Rosie Perez plays Mookie's girlfriend. She's totally amazing. And voice. <laughs> 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 <coughs> she's but she actually opens this iconic opening scene of the film where she's just aggressively early nineties, late eighties b boy style dancing to fight the power. So the story behind it's so incredible to watch. Like it's captivating. It goes on for so long. It's sort of unclear why it's just her dancing in front of what seems to be a kind of cardboard cut out of the New York skyline in this like hyper-colour streetwear. Uh, and apparently she had to do that dance for eight hours <laughs> in order to record that whatever it is, three minutes. So she goes from being like this really amazing dancer to being this like sweaty, angry, like vibrating uh, attention woman, yeah, but Rosie Perez is in it. Martin, oh, young Martin Lawrence is in it, oh, wow. um, and Spike himself looking like a little baby. So there's lots of what would become famous faces that emerged out of this film, which was celebrated at Cannes. Yeah, uh, it's thirty. Was it? Was there any anniversary? Do you remember? Like, do you remember? Because what had come out in '89. Um, so what's that now? So we're not quite at 30, are we? Last year. Yeah, for sure. Mm. They most certainly would have been. Yeah. Because Spike Lee's particularly active in, in the New York film community where he still works and lives, but I'm not aware. Where, where did you see it? Oh, gosh. I first saw it. Oh, you know what? I just happened to find a Spike Lee box set back in the days when I was still collecting DVDs. And so that was my introduction. Um, and then just actually happened to have rewatched it a few weeks ago. Uh, I don't know if it's like prescient timing, but um, it is. Where can people watch it? I do believe it's one of those movies that you can like uh, either watch on one of the streaming platforms or you can like rent from YouTube. Yes, things are actually appearing on YouTube now with a kind of rental option if they're not available on Australian streaming service. Mm, yeah. So for like whatever it is, four or five four bucks, bucks. That's, that, there you go, four bucks, that's your rental for the day. And I strongly recommend it. I actually love Spike Lee. I've always loved him. I, some people really struggle with the kind of overt political nature of his work, but I find it uh, always like like profoundly shocking and arresting Yeah, uh, the way he pivots a story that seems to be about one thing into a, a grand, grandiose political statement really works for me. He's made, you know, again, some 35 films in his career and they're not all great. If you want to check out another piece of his work, I haven't seen it yet, but his his debut film, uh, She's Got to Have It, has actually been, he turned it into a, um, a TV series and it's on either stand or Netflix. So huh. if, you, if you want to go, it's a bit lighter. It's about a woman and her relationships with a few different guys. If you want to go in a bit lighter on Spike Lee, because you can't deal with the uh, reference to real-world events, then She's Got to Have It is the go, but otherwise Do the Right Thing is an amazing film. All right, Do the Right Thing, 1989, um, available online, and Zoe's Extraordinary Playlist another time. (laughs) (laughs) Thanks heaps, Simone. Melbourne's own Triple R. For feature creatures, Simon Hinckley is here. Morning, Bugman. Good morning, everybody. Good morning. How was my pronunciation of my little cabbage? Oh, it was très, très bien. It was excellent. (laughs) Merci. 
Sorry, get uh, back on track. <laughs> but what's do you know what what's French for zombie? Le, probably le zombie. <laughs> <laughs> so so tell us about tell us about this fungus. Yeah, this is an amazing uh, an amazing fungus. There's there's lots of different species, uh, and the reason that I sort of uh, thought about this was. I've been at the museum for a long time, um, and as you know, we get people sending in images for identifications and things like that, and I've never seen this before. doesn't mean it's not there. It's just that someone has – a couple of people have photographed it. But this autumn in Melbourne, I've received two images of flies with really um, extended abdomens. And when I say extended, if you think of a house fly, normally the abdomen is sort of a, a, a just a jet black – it comes in looking like uh, white and black stripes. And the reason that is is because the abdomen is so distended and full of fungus that the membranes between the, the segments are sort of being stretched. Oh so what's in the fly is a fungus called uh, Entomothera muscae. And how it works is a, a spore of the fungus gets onto the fly, it germinates, breaks through the cuticle of the fly's outer layer, gets inside and starts reproducing, splitting and, and growing like crazy. So over the course of about five to seven days, it ends up sort of filling the fly. And so the fly is still walking around, but basically by after five or seven days, it's a walking sort of fungus bag basically. But the interesting thing then is how the fungus can change the fly's behaviour. So what it does is when it's ready, the, it encourages the fly, and I put the word encourages in inverted commas because we're still not quite sure how it does that, but the fly will climb a vertical surface so if that's outside, it might be a fence post, it might be a vegetation, something like that. If it's inside, it'll probably climb up to a window ledge. What it then does is it might stick itself down with its, with its mouth parts or it'll sort of grab on if it can. It then lifts its wings so that it clears the abdomen and then dies in that position with its wings raised and its legs out. And the reason that it's doing that is out of those sort of joins in the abdomen that are now so stretched, the fruiting bodies of the fungus sort of emerge what they do is, because the wings are clear, um, I can see Sarah's slightly horrified face, they, um, they fire off um, their spores. And then a really clever secondary strategy, so those spores uh, fly out and the point is land on another fly. If they don't hit a fly, if they land on a surface that isn't an insect, they're capable of then sort of waiting a little bit and firing a secondary spore to increase the chance that they'll hit something else. So it's this amazing strategy. And if you ever... If you're ever sort of looking on your windowsill and you find sort of a dead fly with its wings sort of raised and looking a little bit furry on the abdomen and a little white sort of cloud around the body, you'll be able to see that that's where these spores have been fired out of the body. So they have actually looked at it as a possible uh, biological control agent of flies, but it's actually a relatively um, – uh, it requires all the right conditions. It doesn't do well in humid areas. But it's this amazing strategy that can change the behaviour of, of the fly, which we see in a number of different insects. And is it just flies? There's a whole range of, of different um, fungi. So, for example, that one we get in Melbourne, we get in, in temperate regions all around the world. There are lots of different species, and often they'll focus on a particular thing. So there'll be a fungus in Brazil that will do tarantulas. There'll be There's another one in uh, Nepal and Tibet that does particular caterpillars, and that's actually uh, a threatened species because it's now been caught up in climate change impacts and also traditional medicines. And so there's been a boom in people thinking that this can be good for you. 
And, of course, one of the really no, well-known is the, the zombie ants in the jungles in uh, South America. Same sort of principle that the spore gets onto the ant, fills it up, and then the fungus tells the ant to leave the colony, to climb up vegetation, grab on with the mandibles, hang on, and then die there. And then this amazing fruiting body emerges from the head, sort of like a big spike. And when that's mature, again, the spores fly out, and if the ants are really unlucky, it falls down on the co-workers underneath. So it's this sort of constant battle, I guess, between the fungi and the ants. If the ants recognise weird behaviour, they will actually, um, if one of the ants is sort of showing distress or acting weirdly, they will take it from the nest and drop it somewhere else. But if they don't sort of get it in time, it will climb up, die, and then sort of rain the spores down on all the ants below. Oh, my God. <laughs> I remember you telling us, a while ago about a parasite that climbs into a bug's abdomen and then takes over its brain, eventually making it go into the water, like yes. making it drown itself. Is it? Yep. Would the parasite and the fungi be functioning? Like is there any kind of relationship in the way that they're functioning or, or forcing bugs to do this? It's an area that they're still uh, looking at in, in a lot more depth at the moment. So the one that we talked about in the past was a Gordian worm, which is an amazing thing that sort of fills up the abdomen and then it needs to reproduce in water. So it says to the, to the victim, you need to go to the water. You need to jump into the water so it can then release itself. So that's a, a different, uh, obviously a fungus and a Gordian worm are different, but the same sorts of principles where the, the parasite host is, is basically killing and changing the behaviour of the victim. And the reason why they're doing a lot of research on these at the moment is so many uh, potential medicines and that can come from fungi and things like that, putting aside the scary factor of, of whether or not you can change things' behaviours, there's actually real potential for, for medicines because one of the other really fascinating ones is a genus called uh, Mesospora, which infects cicadas. It's been found, and this is amazing because what happens is the cicada abdomen gets so full of spores that the back end falls off. So the cicada's walking around and half of its abdomen's dropped off. It still keeps going. And what the infected males do is they flick their wings, which imitates female behaviour. So uninfected males come in to mate with this infected male, get on, climb on them. They have no genitals left because their abdomen's fallen off. But they'll climb on, they'll try to mate, so they'll infect uninfected females they'll infect other males they're flying around raining the spores down on things they're walking around trailing the spores but what's really amazing is this these infected cicadas have an amphetamine in them and also the compound that's in magic mushrooms they don't produce that because the uninfected cicadas don't have those compounds so either the fungus is introducing them or there's something in the fungus that causes the cicada's body to sort of produce these. So there's a whole lot of research going on because there's obviously some amazing chemical things happening in these cicadas with these fungi. So it's an amazing strategy that you can get an insect to continue to act while literally parts of its body are dropping off just in the, to spread the spores. So when so, someone on magic mushrooms comes up and says to you, I can't feel my legs... Maybe we should be worried that no. Yeah. <laughs> so, is is it a philosophical question or an entomological question about who's at the wheel when this behaviour is changed and there are zombie insects? That's what they're trying to find out. So, 
there's there's so many different fungi that's quite possible. Some of them are they're obviously probably going to be acting in very different ways. Some of them don't seem to really penetrate the brain, so it may be that what they're doing is the chemicals are actually acting on the muscles of the insect rather than actually sort of the brain itself. Wow. So I mean, if I guess if you want to anthropomorphize, it's almost like the horror of you know, you your brain is still yours and you know that your body's been taken over but you can't control your muscles. Obviously, oh. they're not thinking in that same way. Mm. But so it could be that some of them, the brain is completely taken over, um, that they do find for some of these fungi that it's in the brain. But for others, it seems to be acting more on the muscles. So it's a very good question about how, obviously, how they're doing it. How do you make something do what it doesn't want to do? just for, for your benefit. So that's what they're trying to find out. Brain-related chemicals, toxins, all sorts of things, um, mm. muscle stimulation. But even if you're stimulating the muscles, how do you say to an ant, like if you stimulate the muscles, maybe it just goes around in circles, how do you make it climb to the altitude that you want and then hang on? So there's so many questions about how a fungus that we generally associate with this inert thing that just breaks down wood, how does it be so amazingly efficient at changing a, a higher, if you like, life form's way of operating. Mm. And are you itching to get back to work? Like, to, are you allowed to bring this into your home, this fungus? I, have, I, got into, <laughs> I got into the museum for the first time this week, so it was about nine or, nine or ten weeks, I think, and it was very nice to be back. I could smell the naphthalene when I went on to the level three of the collection, which I don't normally smell because I smell it all the time. Um, so, yeah, no one at the at the Melbourne Museum is working on this fungus, but it would be um, – and some of these papers, like the, the one about the cicadas and the amphetamines and stuff, I think just came out in 2019. So it's a very new area. They've known about it, but it's now with sort of obviously the ability to do more sort of detailed experimentation and, and the chemical nature, being able to really delve into that question of how – you make something change its behaviour, which can have lots of good prospects, but the human part of me thinks, you know, it has lots of scary possibilities as well. But certainly there's medicinal things that could hopefully be great. Mm. And these citizens who sent in the photos must have been pretty excited to hear back from you. They were. Well, I was excited because I, I th I've been at the museum for a long time and I've never seen it before. So it is in Melbourne. Um uh, it's in it's all around Australia. It's in temperate regions around the world. Um, but for some reason, maybe because people are home with nothing to do, they're actually studying dead flies on their windowsill. I'm not quite <laughs> sure. Um, maybe they've been God. there in their millions every year, and it's just that people are going, "What can I do now? I'll look at this dead fly." I'm I'm sure we're fine, but it's what if the the fungus gets in us? That's um, when you have a look online, and that that's one of the top questions: can can it affect people? Um, no, it can't at the moment. But um, <laughs> you know, that's that's always. I mean, you know, if you were if you were a fungus, and there's seven and a half billion of us walking around the world, we'd be the ultimate host. Mm. Uh, so no, at the moment we're completely safe. But you know, it's it's um, never say never. And just no, finally, is walking fungus bag a technical term or did it just coincidence <laughs> that they took my high school nickname? It is it is the best it is the best sleigh for someone. I feel like I'm gonna be using it all week. You're walking fungus bag and yelling it out the car window. Oh. I didn't even realise I said that. I'm certainly gonna be using that as well. <laughs> it's all yours. Uh, Simon Hinckley, fascinating and thanks so much. Thanks everybody. Triple R. 
With our ageing population particularly vulnerable to COVID-19 and the number of Australians aged 70 and older projected to almost triple over the next four decades, it's increasingly crucial to understand the lived experience of ageing. Sarah Holland-Batt is an award-winning poet, editor, critic and member of QUT's creative writing faculty who testified to the Royal Commission into Aged Care, Quality and Safety, the final findings of which come later this year. Her essay, Magical Thinking and the Aged Care Crisis, appears in the latest edition of the Griffith Review. To tell us about it, the writer joins us on the line now. Sarah, welcome to Breakfasters. Uh, thank you for having me. Um, it makes for uncomfortable reading, but can you tell us what compelled your testimony to the Royal Commission? I can. So my dad um, was a resident of a residential aged care facility um, and he lived there from 2015 until he passed away earlier this year. Um, and very swiftly, I mean, we, we did all the right things. We looked at a number of places. We did all the due diligence that you can do uh, to try and find a place that's suitable. Dad had really quite significant medical needs by that point. He'd had Parkinson's for 15 years, um, dementia, and a, another a number of other conditions that meant that he just essentially needed care that could not be provided in the home. Um, and pretty swiftly after that, we started to notice uh, really significant failures in his care, everything from not delivering Parkinson's medication on time, which has to be given on the dot because that helps you control your movements, um, all the way through to uh, instances of deliberate uh, abuse and neglect by a particular carer. Um, and I was obviously appalled. I did everything that I could to rectify all of this over years, um, including making a complaint to the regulator. Uh, the regulator did nothing. And in short, it's a long story, but in short, um, I got the measure of how the aged care system functions and how it fails you when you actually want to uh, to get the outcomes that you need for your loved one. Um, and so that's really what compelled my testimony to the RC last year. Mm. And you're right that Australia is a prosperous nation with one of the worst aged care systems in the de developed world. What are some of the aspects of that failure that you've uncovered? Well, I think the first thing is the, the chronic understaffing. I mean, there's just not enough staff. Um, the staff are poorly paid. They're mostly casualised. Um, there's been research, research uh, released this week showing a significant decline in the number of medically trained staff um, over the last decade and an increase in personal care workers who can have as little as a TAFE certificate. Um, and when you consider the kind of the serious conditions that people have in aged care, where they might have mobility issues, they may have um, cognitive issues, they may have other medical issues, they need medical care. They don't need care that can be provided by someone with uh, pretty minimal qualifications. So th there's there's not enough staff. Um, and part of that is a failure of our government, successive governments, um, to fail to introduce even minimal standards around staffing. So um, there's no there's no requirement um, at present for even a single RN, a nurse, um, to be on site in Australian aged care facilities 24 hours a day, which will shock people um, mm. when they think about, you know, the kinds of conditions that people have in aged care. Um, so I think there's been a failure of policy making, And then the Royal Commission's also identified a number of other endemic issues, things like malnutrition, um, physical and chemical restraint, which is... Uh, keeping people shackled up um, and also giving people unnecessary medication to make them docile. Um, 
also the sort of failures of the regulator that I myself experienced, um, it turns out are, are chronic kind of issues with the regulation. Um, and then there's also the issue of the way in which government funding is apportioned to these private providers. Many of them are for profit and post exorbitant um, kinds of profits um, and revenues. Uh, and there's no requirement at present that the two point, um, what is it, something in the order of $21.7 billion we're going to be spending um, in, the, in the current financial year on aged care, there's no requirement that that money is actually spent on care when it's given to providers. They're essentially given that money and the expenditure is up to them. Um, and I think really there's no safeguards. To, to put it in, to, to sum it up, the issue is at present there are very few inadequate safeguards that mean that negligence um, and neglect are pretty endemic. This is so shocking when you say that, but as as you said and as as you write in the um, article itself, over the past decade there's been 17 reviews and inquiries into the aged care sector, um, much of which have passed without a huge amount of media interest depending on how kind of big the headlines have been that have come out of it um, and with very few of the reforms actually being implemented. What's the barrier here? Like why, why are you able to tell us all of those things and us continue to have reviews into the system but nothing be implemented? Look, I think it's, it's the same as it always is, isn't it? There are political priorities um, based on what the constituency demands. And the unfortunate fact about aged care failures, I'm quite unique among my friend group in terms of being in my 30s and being aware of this. I think this is something that strikes people more often than not um, when they themselves are having to move a spouse into aged care. So generally speaking, I'd say the people who uncover these failures may already be in their 70s or their 80s themselves. Um, and so I don't know that there's the widespread awareness and experience of this issue um, until, unfortunately, it's a little bit late and people don't really have a voice at that stage in their life um, to, to kind of speak out about it. And so I think that perhaps there's not been the political pressure um, on our leaders that you might see with other issues uh, where you see uh, the kind of um, the need or the, the urge to act on the basis of public demand. People are horrified by these stories and appalled when it happens to them. Um, but unfortunately, people feel very disenfranchised. And it's, it's an issue where perhaps unique among many of the Royal Commissions that we've had um, over the last decade at least, very few of the people it affects most are able to testify firsthand because of their um, cognitive or physical frailty. So we don't actually hear very often from the people who are affected directly. Um, they are effectively segregated from the community and aged care facilities um, and their voices need to be heard uh, in order for change to be affected. But I think that the short answer is it's just not been a political priority, which is an absolute disgrace because this is... Um, one of our very most vulnerable communities um, who, who depend on us literally to provide adequate care. So it's a failure of political imagination um, mm. and I think just a question of priorities, really. What, what role do you think denial of death plays in broad policy in action? I don't think people like thinking about this. And I have talked to lots of friends since I... I mean, I personally hadn't thought about it much myself. Um, until this all happened with Dad. And I think there is a very strong um, inclination to believe that this is happening to that group of people over there 
and that won't ever happen to me or my family. And I have to admit that I felt the same. I thought that mum and I, when we were looking at places for dad, had done really good due diligence. We had looked, we'd inspected, asked questions, done all the right things, and the system still failed him because the system fails people regularly. Um, but I hadn't given much thought to it myself. I'd never um, really considered the, the possibility that I might need aged care at one point in my life until I watched it happen to dad, who was brilliant, intelligent, um, highly intellectually active, um, you know, the sort of person who you just can't imagine, you know, becoming frail and um, having those kinds of needs. And when I do talk to people, they often sort of tell me fantasies about the end of life. They say things like, oh, well, you know, I'll just get together with all of my friends and we'll just pay a nurse to look after all of us together. We'll buy a big house together, you know, or, or things like that. Um, and I think people just don't want to face up to the fact that the available system is what's available. You know, there are no utopian answers to what's going to happen at the end of your life. We've actually got to fix it, not just for ourselves, um, but for everybody, including the people who are in the system at the moment. So I do think there is a huge denial of the end of life, of what faces us, and rightly so, because it's a it's a ne it's an incredibly negative picture at present overall. Um, so I understand why people don't want to think about it and don't want to contemplate that one day they themselves or their loved one um, may be part of this system. But having been through it myself, I'm here to tell you that um, it's not it's not pretty and there are no safeguards. And when something goes wrong, unfortunately, um, at present, without, without reform, um, it doesn't work. Mm. Is there cause for any optimism um, with the final findings due later this year? Oh, look, I'd love to say so, except having now read all of those reports from all of the previous um, reviews and inquiries that have been held, it's been the same recommendations every time. I could tell you now what they will, um, you know, broadly um, probably recommend and suggest. I imagine they'll be in line with all of the expert findings from all of those other reviews. Um, we actually need some leaders who have some willpower to make significant changes and reforms that don't benefit the providers who are posting the, you know, the billions of dollars of profit, um, but rather benefit, you know, the vulnerable people. And whether or not we have that leadership at present, I'm not sure. Um, I certainly hope that the Royal Commission, and I know it will make sweeping, sweeping recommendations around greater regulation, around the financial practices of aged care providers and around care provision and staffing. Um, the question is whether there's the political will to enact those changes, which would be significant um, shifts in the way that the sector operates at the moment and would probably be resisted, I imagine, by providers who benefit from the current system. Well, this issue and uh, many others relating related to ageing is uh, included in the Griffith Review, number 68, titled Getting On, and Sarah, your essay is Magical Thinking and the Age Care Crisis, which appears in the Griffith Review. Um, Sarah Holland-Batt, thank you so very much for talking with us. My pleasure. Thank you. Triple R. You've been listening to a podcast of the best bits of the breakfasters, which is the Monday to Friday breakfast show broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia. Feel free to get in touch with breakfasters via Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, or via the Triple R website.